0: property funder podcast uh it's with me michael dean and today my guest is mark Before we start talking to Mark, just a reminder that if you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you're returning, uh, please, if you aren't already, can you subscribe to the podcast so that uh, we can interview more people like Mark and uh, get as many people as possible exposed to these wonderful guests and inspiring guests that we have. Um, Mark, what's your name, your full name, your business and describe what your business does, please?
1: Okay, so Mark Hawthorne, CEO, Landmark Group, um, which has sort of developed into a group over the years, um, various interests, all real estate related. Um, we've got a investment portfolio. We've got management companies that spin off that. We've got an insurance company, and we've got probably the most exciting business and the one with the most potential is our uh, sales guarantee business. Uh, I'm sure we can get into the detail of some of them in due course. I'm guessing you don't want to touch on insurance too much.
0: <laughs> so. well we're, we're, nothing's off the table mark so um let's let's start at the beginning how how did you get into that line of work you're you're a man similar age to myself um but you know you and you've been the business has been going for quite a while but can you just walk us through the journey from you know from you know teenage years through to through to today
1: yep so um i rapidly left school when i was 16 because i had no interest in staying there um, I, I didn't even have any interest in picking my GCSEs up. That, that's how uninterested I was. Um, I got a job as an office junior in an estate agent, which which wasn't really sort of, you know, it wasn't, I want to go and work in property. But when I was offered this role, I thought, mm, you know, could, could be worse, could be working in a factory or something which I didn't really fancy. So I was an office junior at an estate agent, age 16, on 40 quid a week, which inflation adjusted is still not a lot of money. This is back in 1997. Um, and I was doing all the you, I mean, you, you wouldn't really get this as much anymore, but I was photocopying, I was literally sticking photographs on details. And um, there was loads of stairs in the building because it's on different floors, so I was running up and down stairs all day with bits and notes for people. Um, and slowly you sort of get introduced to other elements of the business and the industry. Um, and then, so I sort of fast forward a bit because you don't want to hear about my administration progression. Uh, <laughs> and then when I was 19, uh, this is in June 2000, just over 23 years ago. I'd had enough there and I thought I knew it all. So I left and went finding property deals for people like you um, and, and, and others. And um, lo- low level stuff to start with, because that was sort of my network, terraced houses, shops and, and crappy shops, not sort of a, you know, multi-million pound things. But like, and really, whatever we could make money off. And I, and I say yeah. we, it's definitely the royal we then. Um, so that that was my entry into the industry at the sort of at the dirty end I would say really, because whilst a lot of people look at property and property development and in inverted commas as glamorous, it's not. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm we weren't doing with Nick Candy. It was yeah. you know burnt out terraced houses where you you know there was a reasonably high danger you could injure yourself by falling through the floor or just fall on your head. There's no <laughs> help <health>, There's no, <laughs> no, no I'll say doing yeah. yourself employed at 19. I can tell you, it's more about money. And, and
0: what? And what part of the world were were you operating in? I mean, I know you're you're from the, the Bolton area, but it, was it around the Bolton area, or was it uh, more uh, broader, Greater Manchester so, sort of thing?
1: Yeah. So, 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 what happened was. Um, there's, a, there's a chap I was dealing with whilst I was working at the estate agencies. And I, I was, I'd actually moved to Wigan Estate, one in Wigan by that point, all, all part of the chain that's owned by what was Halifax Building Society then. And he was getting quite a lot of deals off me and I was figuring out how it all works. And he said, you're one guy in one town, in one estate agents, and you're getting us quite a few deals. If you left and you'd have all the estate agents in all the towns, you know, you'd probably do quite well. And, and sort of, cutting a long story short, that's what I did. So, it, the closer to home, the easier it was naturally. But there was never really any sort of limitations. Then as I sort of started to learn the industry and just learn generally a bit more, it became specifically, and it still is about value. And value isn't geographic really. So we ended up buying, I remember buying like an estate of houses in Middlesbrough for about We've got 40 grand. were about 14, 15 houses on this estate. And Nobody wanted to touch it, which is almost part of the attraction. Lime, lime trees close, it was called. It's probably been bulldozed now. But, but the point is, it didn't really matter where it was or what it was. It was what's the relative value. Not is it glamorous, is it shiny? What's the you can yield, yield a little bit, but more just you know what sort of discount am I getting? And when, and when you start out, different for different people. But for me, it starts out. I had no money. I mean, no money. It wasn't like I'd I I, I had no money at all, so I had to make as much as I possibly could of every deal because I only had a little bit and then when I got a little bit, it was very, very, I mean, I'm even like this now, but it was very, very, very precious capital. So if you can only do one deal, you've got to do a brilliant deal because if you do an average deal or a crappy deal, you're either going to lose your money quick or you're going to grow slowly. So I was sort of really, really disciplined. All the while, I was sort of finding deals for people. So. I was always sort of active in finding transactions and doing bits of deals, whatever they may be, but always with the intention to invest. Um, So even though I called it landmark investments, ironically, I didn't do any investments for about two years because I had
0: no money. So so just for, for our listeners benefit, essentially what you what you were doing is you were brokering deals and you're earning a commission on brokering these deals. And it was only once you'd accumulated enough cash to be able to do your first deal of your own. That you actually were able to be an investor yourself so it was sort of broker, broker turned in, investor yeah. type it, of model
1: there's probably like a, a, a mid-range short story in there that one of the chaps a guy called russell who i was taking some of the deals to and he was giving me things to sell so it was working very well he said to me why don't you bring the transactions to me first i'll buy them and then when we when we sell them on i'll give you half the profit There was a little bit sort of you know return ratchet in there and things so, I went from being an agent to sort of being a joint venture partner. And then we did two or three of those. And I did that well that quick that I then didn't need him. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which there's a certain irony to that, but we still did lots of business. Um, so, yeah, they, and it sort of went from agent to joint venture, but not putting any cash in to getting cash out and then being able to sort of invest. Because if you're earning, which I was at the time, 500 quid, 1,000 pounds there on the fees, because you're talking about 20, 30 grand sort of units it's still going to take you a long time after living expenses, to have enough money to buy a property, whereas that sort of really sort of I didn't realize it until years later, but that really sort of uh, leapfrogged me. Yeah. Other that, people's that. money,
0: as they call it. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, look, if from Russell's, if you're in Russell's shoes, you, you know, you um, if you're not doing the running around for for him, he's not he, he's, he's not doing the deals either.
1: So, oh, yeah, yeah. it made perfect sense for both sides
0: yeah uh, but I guess um probably we needed to find it. if if I was I'm thinking about if I was in Russell's shoes I'd try and find a, a better way of tying you in so you didn't fly the nest quite so quickly uh or try and find a way to hang on your coattails as you, as you inevitably overtook Russell uh in your business journey so how long how long did that kind of go on for and and and, and then let's talk through the evolution of of that into into the, the landmark of today So. I suppose the, the
1: underlying theme of value took me in lots of different directions. So um, I got involved early on, and I'll tell you how early it was, there wasn't a name for it. We used to call it selling flats before they built. And then one day somebody said, oh, it's called off plan now. So that's a kind of off plan. But it was basically, you know, I've got a chap who I know and he wants to build these flats, but he doesn't really want to take the risk. So he wants somebody to buy them you know, do a deal on it and blah, blah, blah. So I got quite involved in that and um, getting involved in that led me to understand what ground rents were because after these flats were sold there was this ground rent thing left and, the, and people because I was young you know even for years and years and years I was always the youngest people would just chuck me things and say mm, see what you can do with this for me see what you can do with that do you know what I mean? and I, I put the effort in um, and again it sounds ridiculous to say it now but I could use the internet I'm probably not much more sophisticated now than I was then but I was dealing with people who didn't even have mobile phones. I mean, very wealthy people, but they didn't have mobile phones, you know, you have to ring their office and some of them had pages. Um, you had to fax things too. I mean, the ministers were even in the 2003, 2004. you know, you were you were faxing things. So i I could get things online. It was almost an average, arbitra- a technology arbitrage in this, that I could get something online from like loot or something, which was obviously quite big at the time, and then just ring somebody up who didn't have access to loot online and sell them the deal. Hmm. Um and you could even, I mean, things like, you know, an auction in London selling a house in Burnley. You could buy that in the London auction and then just stick it back in the auction in Lancashire that sells houses in Burnley, and make an arbitrage because it had just been put in the wrong auction. Yeah. Technology, technology levelled all that now, which our technology does. Um. So it the, the 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 value drive thing just sort of blew me towards. I mean, regulated tenancies, if you're familiar with what they are. Um. Did quite well, a if, lot of if
0: you took if you maybe you can just explain briefly what they are to our to our audience, because some some of our audience will be experienced property professionals and some of the audience will be um, less experienced and probably don't quite know what that what what a regulated uh, tenancy is. Right. Um
1: testing my memory now. So b- broadly, the law was changed. I think in the late 80s, where if you were living in a property, you got protected and your rent sort of got capped the kind of things people are terrified of now and rightly so which meant you could have a hundred thousand pound house vacant possession but it had somebody in it who were typically elderly people you know in the 60s 70s 80s paying 20 quid a week yeah so you're getting a thousand quid a year but you could buy that for 35 grand now somebody would look at that and say well there's no point buying that because the yield's horrendous because base rate was six percent let's say and i can't get vacant possession whereas i'd look at it and think well I'm probably going to, and this is just maths, I'm probably going to outlive these people. The rent goes up every couple of years-ish by RPI. And if I'm buying a 100 grand house for 35 grand, I mean, sorry, i cutting across myself, but the way I used to look at it was, if they move out first, and most of these people would pass away to move out, then I, I get a windfall. If I die before them for whatever reason, then it doesn't really matter to me. So it was quite asymmetric, and I quite like yeah. sort of, asymmetric scenarios. The arbitrage is asymmetric. Um, so, so regulated tenancies, most people would just go, this changed by the way, but most people would go, why the hell would you buy that? You can't get vacant possession. Uh, the rent's restricted, blah, blah, blah. My view was, if you're an investor, why the hell do you want vacant possession? And if you can get something, at a, I mean, again, this changed over time, but a 50, 60, 70% discount to vacant possession, why would you not do it? And nobody wanted them so again technology um, the rent register as it was called was put online and i just spent hours and hours and days and hours endless it was like this, this rich vein of sort of deals just going on there finding out that it's mr dean who lives in london that owns it and i'd approach you and you'd think bloody hell some lunatic in balsam wants to buy this crappy old Terry house i am got in wigan me of that i've inherited 20 years ago and they bring you up and say you do realise that, you know, it's got restricted this and it's hey, yeah, We're a bit strange. We like these things. Um, and, and, and then the, 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 they still exist. But obviously, each time somebody moves out stroke passes away, there, there's one less and they're not being created anymore. Um, but we, we had a really, really good run with those. Um, you're buying them, selling them. I mean, again, obvious sort of common sense thing was. There was always this view that these people live in these houses you pay 20, 30 quid a week have got no money. And what I realised, because I go and meet them, you know, just to introduce myself, they were actually quite wealthy in a lot of instances. And why were they wealthy? Because they didn't pay much in rent. Yeah. You know, if your mortgage was eighty percent less than it is, you'd have more money. <laughs> so you'd say to these people, you know, if you want to buy the house, I've no issue, and they'd sell fantastic. And you'd say, well, you know, it's a hundred thousand pound house, but you know, I'll do your deal. I'll sell it for eighty-five thousand, and they'd be over the moon, and, and they'd buy it up you the week after with cash that they got in the building society, and you might have paid. <laughs> 35 grand for it two weeks before. and um, but it was just amazing. so obvious a thing to do to say these people who live there might want to buy. And if they didn't want to buy it, that was also fine because we just sit on it. But we had a very, very good run with literally buying these things and saying to the to the tenant, would you like to buy it off us? And,
0: and, and, and it was and,
1: amazing how many of them said, Yeah, brilliant. I, I didn't think you'd ever sell it to me. I,
0: I mean, the, the trading aspect of it is 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 brilliant. and, and I know. I know some other people who 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 invest in a very similar way to you, that they they like ground rents as well as uh they like ground rents as 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 well as regulated uh tenancy properties. Um and and, it, and I think that the market for that for those types of properties has moved on to the extent that people are almost paying are paying not far off the, the VP values. I mean, a, a few at least a few years ago, they're paying almost up to the, the vacant possession values for for these things. So I guess the the margin that you were able to extract from them twenty years ago is is very different to what you would be able to get for for them today. But yeah, um, that, I, you that's
1: moved back to the value point of yeah. you know, once you're selling more of a certain asset class than you're buying. And you're only, I've got against simple common sense logic. If I can buy something for less than I think it's worth, I should buy it. If yeah. I can sell it for more than I think it's worth, I should sell it. And anything else in, in that equation is emotion. But if I can buy something for less than it's worth, but I don't like the look of it, or if I can sell something more than it's worth, but I really like the asset, it's emotion. And we try and keep emotion out of these things. We're not robots, but we try and keep emotion out. So. I've switched lanes quite a few times over the years from different asset classes as I got in early and I probably got out early in a lot of instances, but we got out well. So it's, it's buy low, sell high, switch lanes, buy low, sell high. And it's, it's not let's sell things. You know, we are fundamentally investors and we have a 200 million portfolio. But if somebody comes along and wants to buy, apart from the kids, et cetera, uh, if he wants to buy <laughs> something that we own, it, it should be for sale at the right price it should be for sale at the right price because we're not traders but as an investor you exist to make money not to generate cash flow and if somebody wants to offer me twice what something's worth just picking numbers then i'd be a fool not to sell
0: it it, it it's
1: pretty sound logic it's hard to, it's hard Honestly, to it's it's common sense it's just it's you know i've not entered another dimension and sort of opened a part of my brain to come up with that it's actually common sense is, is just typically not overthinking things. And I don't mean taking a lax approach. I just mean not trying to be too clever, just literally looking at things and thinking, you know, what, what are the basics of this? Even if you look at, you know, Elon Musk and people, he's just gone, we're moving towards, you know, uh, eco-friendly, etc., etc. I'll do an electric car. The, the, the details are far more complicated, but the basic logic is pretty simple. Of people are going to need these cars. Therefore, if I can provide them, so pr- property is like that. But people get caught up in it. I mean, if you, if you look at it at the, the sort of retail level, as I would call it, when house prices are going down, people don't want to buy, and when house prices are going up, everyone wants to buy. Yeah. It just makes no sense. But it's, it's like behavioural it. economics, human nature, herd instinct. Call it what you want. But if you want to buy a house, the best time is in a down market. But everybody wants to buy in an up market because they're frightened of missing out on the growth. And you, and you don't buy a house to make
0: money, you buy a house to live in. Well, I think most people do unless you, unless your business is investing in is investing in houses, I suppose. And then it's a it, it's a, it's a different equation. Uh, it's funny because it's, it's it's funny to hear you talk about that, uh, about that, it, the sort of lack of emotional attachment uh, to to the assets. I know that some people do get emotionally attached to assets. I know, uh, for example, casting my mind back probably seven or eight years ago I was I was doing a bit of development consultancy for a large uh, a a large developer and we'd uncovered a site in southeast London this sort of experienced uh, it was a property lawyer as it happens and he owned this patch of land on a uh, exclusive estate in a part of southeast London called Blackheath which is kind of quite well to do and he'd got planning consent on that site after many years and after quite a lot of battles for about 150 units and uh, yeah and and he'd uh, and he'd had fights with neighbours along the way and he had to turn he had to overturn a. uh it was classified as metropolitan open land uh, which is kind of london the london equivalent the green belt for some of our listeners who, who don't know what that is um so he managed to get it uh, declassified as metropolitan open land, and and successfully got 150 units, uh, con- planning consent on on the site. Uh, on on a neighbouring and on a neighbouring site, Barclay were developing. Uh, I don't know, 400, 500 houses. So there's a huge. And if you know, if Barclay are developing next door, you're generally going to be seeing a big uplift in, in in your land value just just through the sales prices that they're achieving. And he just he just didn't want to sell. He just wasn't there was I think there was just something about him that it, something about the site he felt so emotionally attached to it he was a guy in his I'm, I am I want to say 60s he had plenty of money it it wasn't going to change his life selling the site and I think it, and, and I think it because he'd had such a journey I think it was probably 15 20 years of, of blood sweat and tears he'd got the land for nothing um and it was the most incredible windfall and he just didn't he just didn't want to sell it I think, I think deep down, he just didn't want to sell it. Um, and I don't even know if it sold it now. And it just, it, I've it strikes. It. I've seen
1: it honestly many, many times where you would find, you know, a car sales lot and you'd you'd write to the, you know, to Mr. Dean and you'd say, I, we think we can, you know, get a lot of flats on this or whatever it was, and if it was a million quid and you could offer them 4 million subject to planning. And it's a complete no brainer, you know, even at 2 million, it's a complete no brainer especially going back to my earlier point. And they'd enter the negotiation and they'd actually tell you to me, you know, the first person who's been around, you have had a chat with a few other people. And you get to the point where you thought, well, this, this, is, you know, this is going to change this guy's life. And they just have changed their mind. And I think what it comes down to is two things. One, if they sold the asset, they lose the business, and the business is an integral part of their life and the daily routine. And the other ones where they didn't run a business from there, but it was similar to the chap you just mentioned, they enjoy being in the property industry all of a sudden and he and from what you are told me he sort of wasn't because he was a lawyer so they enjoy you know maybe meeting tony pidgley and talking about the scheme and they show them around the scheme and they have a nice lunch and they have a great chat and all the and then suddenly they think hang on if i sell this i'm, I'm going to step out of this world so I, i've seen it loads of times over the years where it's do you want to sell it or do you want to talk about selling it and, and they yeah. are very different things
0: yeah, I, I, I've lost count of the number of meetings I had on site and uh, uh, I had I had with uh, uh, I had with uh, with this chap. He's called Terry. Um, over the over the, uh, over the mo- uh, months and months and months and months, uh, probably best more than more than months, possibly even years. Uh, and in the end, you just go. I think in the end, I sort of gave up, and then we set up Avermore more, and it, it sort of went on the back burner. Um, but yeah you, you do see it you, i mean we we see it with- st- strategic land business now with chartfield where you you get these landowners and they just they're they're the, they're the ones that just want too much money and that are greedy and then you've got others who it's like they they like the idea of they 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 like the idea of a developer coming to them and telling them that their land is worth all this money and that one day that they could make all this cash from them but I think that there's there's something about it there's something about the the process of actually executing on it and and selling it because a lot of the time it, it, a lot of the time these landowners in my experience they're they're quite mature and and I think they're almost like well so once I've sold this what am I going to do is you know let's say it's an operating business like a garden center like you were saying like you're the car park guy so what am I going to do with this money what am I going to do with myself so I've got this money but my, my sense of purpose is 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 now is is now non-existent. You know, my, their self-perception is is changed, and it's it's not often talked about actually in the property industry as a mot- it, you know as a as a, the psychology of a seller. So much of the psychology of the seller is just down to is just down to money and price. But a lot of it. But a lot of the time, it's a lot more nuanced about it, especially if someone feels very attached to that to that asset. And it's funny because we were talking about we're obviously talking about sort of irrational approaches to uh, to assets, um, but and and obviously how logically you approach these things compared to other people, and we're obviously striking that contrast. So, um, yeah, it, look, it's fascinating. It, it's fascinating. I'm sure there's probably um, dozens of war stories uh, that we could share of of a similar nature. Um, but we one of the questions I had for you was that, so once you started to get, once you started to trade these regulated tenancy properties, how were, obviously you were going to have, you were having profits from the successful trade, but the ones you had to hold, how were you financing them? Were you taking third-party along alongside the debt? Or, I mean, I know, I guess mid-noughties, you could get very high LTVs as well, but can you talk through talk us through how how you were financing yeah. that? Um, yeah, did you have any partners along the way? So the first property I bought,
1: I uh, don't think we can get in trouble for this now. I bought it to live in, um, with no real intention of living in it. So I got 95% LTV, blah 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 blah, uh, and then I decided, for the record, to rent it out because of personal circumstances had changed, um, and the, the bank, whoever it was, Intelligent Finance, I think it was it was part Halifax. Um they were a bit sort of committed and they just said, OK, and they, they loaded the rate up a tiny bit, but it was still a lot more cheaper than buy to let. Um, and then I bought another property, another property, another property. And I'd have to sell one every now and again because cash would start to run out a little bit. Um, it, it depended really on the, the it was never an, a, an agency per se, but what I would call the agency side where we are just acting as buyers for people. Um, and, and sometimes you do it on a, you know, somebody bid 100 grand, if you got it for 90, they give you half the savings. So, so some of them you could get quite yeah. a chunky sort of fee, especially if you got into the, you know, as we did into the bigger numbers. Um, they were funded predominantly through buy-to-lets in the early stages, Mortgage Express, et cetera, et cetera, Northern Rock, you, all the people at Boss Bradford, Bingley. Um, and again, this was just completely normal to me. But I'll get letters through the post from Mortgage Express. I probably still got some. And they'd say, "You bought this house a couple of years ago, and you borrowed this much money off us. We believe, because we're using some crude sort of desktop automated valuation, that it's now worth more. If you want to borrow another ten thousand pounds, just sign this and send it back to us. And you just sign this thing. It was like a one pager. Send it back to them, fax scan it, whatever it was. And then, like the day after, it'd just go ping in your account. So it was, it was almost as, as, as fast as I was finding things, money was falling from the sky. I, mean, I remember Clydesdale, um, you, you saw Yorkshire Bank, Virgin now, but um, you know, you bring up relationship manager there and say, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting towards the, it was an overdraft we had by that point, like an RCF. i getting towards the limit and we've got a few transactions. And you say, how much do you want? You know, I'd say 250,000, which was, you know, bear in mind three years before I was on five grand a year. You know, 250,000, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's faxes and we'd sign a thing. I've got literally one pager of, I want to increase the facility by 250,000. Fax it back. And then you'd log in online again, basic sort of online system, and you'd have an extra 250,000. And you could go and buy things, cash. And then there was just some sort of 90-day thing where you had to charge it. So it was nothing like it's network. You've got all this, you know, up upfront sort of due diligence. It was quite the opposite of buy it, and then get a valuation done and a drive-by valuation as well, which used to cost 40 quid. So we used to get drive-by valuations done, and we used to have to brief the valuers to say, don't make it look like you've taken the photograph of the house from your car, because sometimes you send it to the bank and they just slowed the car down and taken the picture out (laughs) the window. And they got the edge of the wing mirror on. So the bank used to go nuts and say, at least get them to get out of the bloody car and take a picture. <laughs> <laughs> it was raining that day. So you can imagine these guys driving down the street, just about slowing down to get a picture. And they get the 40 quid, and it probably took them 15 minutes through the one-pager. Um, and, then, and then post-crash, it went too far the opposite, as these things do like a pendulum. It just swings too, too much one way or the other. So we're financing them that way. Um, I, there was another chap. Um, He'd be probably quite elderly now, be in his 70s called Jeff Nyman. Um, and he liked the regulated tenancies as well. Um, so we sort of paired up. He had a few assets that he chucked into a company, I chucked them in. Um, and, and that that company grew reasonably well. He's the one actually had access to the finance. So I sort of piggybacked with him, um, which is what got us into Clydesdale, um, because he had the relationships there. Um, just again, just normal things at the time. There was no Sort of genius route. It was sort of you know Russell, the chap at the time. He, he's got money and he wants these deals. And and I, I get the logic of. And I've always got to understand why me, why me, why why are you coming to us with this transaction? And and it's the same if you if you're lending or if you're doing LDS. You know, what's the justification for this person using us? And if you can't understand it, there's usually a rat somewhere that you've just not spotted yet. Mm. So with Russell, it made completely logical common sense that. I got him transactions that he couldn't get, and he got half the money subject to his ratchet. That was more money than he got for not getting them. Jeff wanted to sort of chuck all these things in together, and then we'd use his checkbook and his debt to buy more. And um, that partnership very politely disbanded in the end because I didn't need him anymore. Yeah, and it was, it was never sort of callous, it was very logical just to say, you know, Jeff, I remember saying you busy, and I'd say, I bought you know three houses last week. And he said, "Oh, why did you not bring them to me?" And I said, oh, "I didn't need you. You know, it'd be a bit weird, Jeff, if I was coming to you to buy things and give you half that I didn't need you on." And whilst he sort a bit about it, it's just common sense again. Of if you know, somebody came to me for investment and they said, "I've got a million pounds in the bank. I don't want to use it. I'm not investing." You know, they said, "I've committed a million pounds to it. Then I might consider it." And so it, again, you just practice common sense of you know, um, why are you doing it? And if and we see it quite a lot. I'm sure you see it in, in, the, in the various businesses you're involved in. If people want to use your money before their own. And I've always been the opposite of the only reason we've ever taken um, bits of joint ventures, external capital, just ignoring the, the other debt, is because we didn't have it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I will allow someone to earn off us because if we don't, we can't earn. So again, it's symbiotic there that, you know, that they can earn and we can earn and everybody wins and everyone understands what their role in the social transaction is. Um, and then post-crash, um, we got a bit lucky and we, we bought quite a lot of ground rents from mid 2000 into the crash and we sold quite a lot of the properties and because we sold a lot of the properties before the crash just because the prices were so high rather than because I predicted the crash, um, we had these unused facilities and Clydesdale, no relationship anymore so I can say this, they rang me up and said, um, we think that you're not going to use these facilities. There was no non ufi or anything because we we're so lax. We think you're not going to use these facilities because you're told that you're not really buying any properties, you're buying ground rents. So we would like to offer you the opportunity to switch these facilities and you can buy ground rents. Now, this was in the day where everybody was under the cosh from the lenders. The lenders were under the cosh from the government and the markets. So back to the point a second ago, I said, "It was called Mark, the guy I said, Yeah, I don't believe you. Why? So he sort of fessed up. <laughs> with his area manager at the time who came to see me and said the bank of england wants us to get out of property and into trading businesses so we think ground rents are trading businesses (laughs) therefore we'll let you change your facilities it was about a million quid you know we'll let you change the facilities and it does us a favor then because we get a million pounds out of property and we lend a million pounds to a trading business nobody cares it's the same business it's just numbers on a spreadsheet so again okay i get the logic that's fine So we suddenly had about a million quid, I can't remember the exact figure, to go and buy ground rents. Um, And this was at a time where the only things a lot of the big developers could sell, I mean, the biggest developers you can think of, I won't name them, but was ground rents. This was something for years and years they weren't bothered about selling because they were making so much money. And then suddenly you've got senior people, you know, regional directors, MDs, CEOs, in some instances, FDs, you know, rifling through filing cabinets, as I mentally imagined it, trying to find things to sell. Got can't sell land, because everyone who buys land is in the same boat as them. They couldn't sell properties because of what was going on. And, and these ground rents suddenly, you know, they, they could get three, four, five hundred thousand four, of us. And, and that accelerates us quite a bit. When that money ran out, um, the, the, the banks sort of had this conversation with us of, you know, it's not you, it's us. Yeah. <laughs> and it was. It was something like, we'd love to give you more money. but. We're not giving anybody any money. We're actually doing quite the opposite of getting money back in. So, and, and overlapping and these things all overlap like layers. In the ground rent business, and, and again, just common sense, if we got offered anything that was too big or too expensive, and that could be the same thing, it can be different. You know, something at 200,000, I might think is too expensive, and something at 20 million was definitely too expensive. We would just um, ring up some of the bigger boys in London and say, Michael, uh, you know, I've got this transaction in Manchester, uh, it's quite well priced, but it's a bit rich for us. Um, if you buy it, will you pay me a fee? And these pay quite generous fees. So we have this sideline going, which make quite, you quite, know, relatively speaking, a lot of money at the time of just trading these ground rents. And again, technological arbitrage, believe it or not, we're using Google Pay Per Click for a lot of it. And we're paying like pennies per click. And developers, lenders, um, all sorts of weird and wonderful people were just Googling, sell my ground rents. I mean, it's it's more of a mature industry now, but at the time, people just wouldn't have a clue who to go to. Mm. And you Jones jonesing the thousand people had no interest for obvious reasons. And um, so we're getting these grants. So anyway, I, I realised after a while that these people I was selling to, um, they were a little bit lax on the management. They weren't bad. They were just a bit lax on the management, a bit inefficient, and they would pay more than they needed to for these assets. So I thought, this is this was in January 2010, immediately after Christmas. I sort of sat down and I thought. If I can set one of these funds up, can't be that difficult. I can buy assets cheaper than effectively the competition and I can manage them better. So I, I can entry level lower, cash flows higher, complete no-brainer. It took me two years to launch that fund. It was a nightmare. Um, just everything, and it wasn't anything I did wrong. It's just, it's probably matured a little bit, but in that world then of setting up sort of what I call UCIS Unregulated Collective Investment schemes. It was kingdom of the blind that you could go to a lawyer a big international law firm and we had this and they'd say oh yes 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 we understand these uh, give us twenty thousand pounds and we'll give you some advice and then we realized you know six months later that the advice this guy had given us was completely wrong because he didn't understand the law because we found a guy who did and then about five years later we realized that the second guy didn't actually want law <laughs> and you you only know when you know because you've got to sort of they and they were i won't name them but they were big, 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 big international law firms. Um and they have someone and I think all they did was they got the dusty book off the shelf and went yeah. and things. Um, so we set that fund up. So keeping on the theme of how do we fund things. And then we went out um through our accountants who've got a wealth manager attached. I say we they went out and they got ten, fifteen people in then they put in about a million and a half quid and then we geared it to about five million, which again was, you know, a big checkbook at the time for us. And we went on a bit of a buying spree bought quite a lot of stock uh, and it was supposed to be like a five-year investment vehicle and then the ground rent market had started to mature quite a lot so you had the big institutions coming in there um paying i mean this, at the time we thought we were paying ridiculous money when you understand you know the, the institutional side and solvency too and rpi flows and things we mm. will probably get them quite cheap but versus the what we thought was the market so then we sold out that fund the assets rather than the fund um Got, got a load of cash in, went again, went again. Um, and then suddenly, the, the, the sort of, I mean, you'll be familiar with carriage, it's say a profit share. The profit share that was thrown off for us put us back in this position, which we, we've become familiar with now of, we don't need the investors anymore, we can do it ourselves. Yeah. Um, so we rolled, and rolled, and rolled. Um, and then you get to, I don't think anybody really ever gets to the point where they don't, where, where they've got more money than opportunities they a handful of people I would expect but we, we just got to the point where we are now able to fund pretty much all the opportunities we can generate and and I actually see that as a fundamental part of my job it's the same as if you're a lender you just you're just balancing supply and demand if you've got too much demand and not enough supply you're not really optimized if you've got too much supply ie cash and not enough demand you're not really in business so I, I'm across the group including LBS, I'm just forever looking at do we have enough cash debt uh you know cash equivalents as we would call them versus the opportunities and you don't want to get it perfectly right by the way because if you've got 100 100 100 on each side of the scale it only takes a deal to fall through or another deal to drop in and then you're back out of sync so you you're just trying to sort of broadly keep the sort of um opportunities in money going out in balance
0: you you, you want to i mean I'd say you want to have more opportunities than money generally speaking so that
1: I keep you honest yeah. yeah. yeah if you've got if you've got more money than opportunities you turn into you know the RBS's of the mid 2000s where they just lower and lower and lower the bar to the point where everything's an opportunity
0: we you know when you you, you talk about when the institutions come came into the market um, knowing how institutions work was there was there an opportunity to continually arbitrage there because that they weren't going to look at, you know, five grand rents in Hull or whatever, um, because that's going to be too small a ticket size for them to look at. They want big portfolios. To, so it was kind of it was almost like your job. Did your job then become putting together the portfolio of these things and selling them to them as a, as a job lot so that the ticket size was big enough for them to actually give it yeah. the time of day?
1: No, not exactly. So what we would do is we would just carry on buying things because we, we like them. So the, the fundamental logic wasn't I'm going to sell these. On it was if we think they're a good deal, we should buy them. Dead, dead basic. It's just condensing yeah. out to that stage. Yep, yeah, I like it. Buy it. Buy it. Buy it. Buy it. Buy it. And every now and again, um, you get a bit squeezed on cash. So you you, you were very asset rich and pretty cash poor because you'd done your job too well of investing the money. And you just deploy some of it, whatever you thought was reasonable. What we also would get on occasion is somebody ring us up and, and we put ourselves out there for this. And, and again, opportunities, you've always got to be putting the messaging out of, you know, um, where where you are useful to people. Somebody rang me up and they said, listen, we've got 100 million allocation, which I, and these aren't the exact numbers. But we've spent 95. We need to spend the other five. And then and, and he led me to this. He said, if you want to put a little portfolio together for us, will pay you very, very, very good money because even if we overpay you for it by quite a lot, Mark, it'll just blend into the 95 million. So effectively went and found about three million quid of stock and said, which we probably paid two, two and a half for. They said, I'm trying not to name the guy, uh, said, OK, if you give me five million for this, we'll sell it to you. And they said, and they went away and they came back and said, yeah, OK, then. And I said to him, does your model still include agents fees? And he said, "Yes, it does." And I said, "Rightly, you can put two percent on top as well." Then, so they But if you understand the institutions, they are those kind of institutions. They're just solving back to a number. Yeah. And I remember going seeing one of the big ones years ago, and I said, "If you let me manage your portfolio, we're we're based in the north. We're far more efficient. We've got all the systems and process. We've learned it off our own stock. You know, I'll get your IRR from four to six percent, no problem." And the guy says to me, if you got my RR from four to six percent, you know what happened, get a bonus, get promoted. And he said, I will get dragged in front of our investment committee, our risk committee. And they will say, I'll say his name because I don't know it.' it is. Charles, you are taking risks. You are taking risks. Because if I'm supposed to get four percent and I get three and a half, not great. If I get four and a half, but if I get out of range. So then I realised that a lot of these guys are just solving back to a nut. And it was guys. I solving back to a number. So it didn't matter what I thought it was worth. You could start to reverse engineer what things were worth to them. And um, so we, we, we had a good run of doing that. And then we got to the stage ourselves, and, and the market's changed quite a bit. There's been a lot of sort of disruption in it, as, as we'll all be familiar with. Um, it got to the stage where we became the buyer of choice, and we just became a buyer, and then we accessed institutional financing. Um, yeah. And well, once you can access that, you know, this infinite capital. I mean, we, we have spoken to people over the last couple of years who, who have got assets under management in the trillions. Our market is you know tens of billions. You've got people who, you know, probably probably the cash they're getting in a month is more than the size of our entire market. And that's one participant out of hundreds. So it's, it's infinite cash once you can tap into that. But you can't tap into that for 25 million or 50 million. It needs to be 100
0: million plus,
1: yeah. They're just a bit like, you know, they start falling asleep unless you're talking into, into nine figures. So we have to get to a point, you know, scrap and scrape and do all sorts of, you know, patch these transactions together to get into that world. And then once you're in that world, you realise that, wow, you know, this is infinite capital, as long as you, you do what you're supposed to do.
0: Yeah, there, there's a sort of lift off, lift, lift off phase. I just uh, I just read, or I said read, uh, listened to the audiobook of Barbarians at the Gate, and 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 bearing in mind that we're talking about nearly 40 years ago and just the scale of the numbers and the the size of the checks that you could that even then uh, they could write it's it's staggering really isn't it you know and 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 often it's just on a phone call but once you're in that kind of that circle once you sort of tick that box and you're elevated into that into that world it's you know the doors open for you like like you wouldn't like you wouldn't believe so and it and when you're when you're that little guy and you're scraping around your 10k 20k deals you know you you just don't picture it do you and then and then you get there and you're like wow okay it's it's quite it becomes easier
1: actually i would say because it's hard to get into that it's very very difficult to get in but, but you know, everyone should strive for that if they're that way minded. But then once you're in, it, it's easy because you've got the infrastructure, you've got the everything becomes highly structured in, in a positive sense rather than in an onerous sense. Yeah. So it becomes, especially graphics, it becomes mechanical. It's like it's just like some plumbing yeah. that money flows around and, and somebody goes yeah. to them and somebody comes in here and something, and then you can get it's not about sort of just growing the headcount for the sake of ego, but you know, we've got in-house lawyers now, in-house asset managers, in-house fund management specialists. So you get all the all the jobs you used to do, you <laughs> become yeah. sort of this division of labour where you can then get back to that point of, if you're the CEO or the person that runs the business, whatever you call yourself, of, of just looking at it from a high level and, and thinking, what strings do I need to pull? What do I need to, knobs do I need to twizzle? Where should we go next? Whereas when you're younger, and I say younger, that's wrong. It, it, I was younger, but when you're in the earlier part of the journey, it doesn't matter what age you are. That's where it's a lot, lot, lot harder. And that's where a lot of people get stuck, I think. So they go and buy five houses and go, bloody hell, you know, this isn't that easy. But when you get to fifth day and you can employ a couple of people to manage them, and you've got repairment and things. It's, you know, your breakthrough becomes easier and easier. And easier. Different challenges, I admit, and more pressure. But I think it operation, it becomes a lot easier because you become more specialised individually.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of going through a bit of a transition career transition in my through the through my kind of career at the moment, and um, I, and and one of the things is that, that I'm experiencing because I'm I'm operating across five different companies, is that, but I don't ha- I, I don't currently have an, uh, an, anyone to assist me with it, and so, uh, not full time, I have assistants in each of the individual businesses, but they also have to help other directors in those companies, and what what I and I'm coming back to that point of like where I was 10 years ago I'm like well I'm just doing all of this myself I was like oh I was like okay well, I need to I need to sort that out so yeah like I need to hire hire someone to like an assistant or something like that to to help me with that leverage because you, you know you it, it's it, it's so hard to just do all these things on your own and, and like you say once you've got the infrastructure like you know with Avonmore for example you know you yeah, know 30 plus people we had the infrastructure or all the rest of it um obviously I'm not running the business day to but um, you know, in all of these individual businesses, you know, you, we've got, you know, we've got a potato operation north of Poland, you know, we've got, you know.
1: Sorry, sorry. It's, I misheard you. I thought you said you've got a potato operation north of Poland.
0: Yeah, yeah, we do. I do. It's, uh, it, 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 it's, it's a family business. It's, it, since my father died, I've, I've become quite heavily involved in it.
1: Uh, um, and but, the, next, the next question was, how the hell did you get into that? But it makes perfect sense. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's it, quite a it's late to switch to that
0: one. Yeah, it's, it's not the most obvious, but, you know, like we've got. You know we've got dozens of people there we've got a, a full we've got a full management team out there that uh that are running running the business you know warehouses crates you know distribution all the rest of it um you know a lot a lot of it runs itself but you know you've got there there are people there that, that run all that and but when you sit above all these businesses as a kind of shareholder and uh and, and a non executive director and um, you, you kind of need you know, there's 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 so much to to keep on top of. You you actually need a bit of assistance to to uh, to to stay on top of it. But like you said, like you know, without that, you don't have the you don't have leverage. You don't have you, you can't you, you can't be operationally uh, efficient if you're trying to do everything yourself. Um, and I, and like you said, that if you're that that guy guy or girl who's done built the five houses or whatever, that's where you can get stuck. And it's it's once you've got to that scale. Where you've got those, you know that, you know that it's it's the scale that enables you to grow faster because you've got the cash flow, you've got the revenue, to 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 give yourself that operational leverage, um, of of additional staff. And I guess it's that growing pain in that in that yeah, lower there's, tier.
1: There's a few things I've realised this over the years. Of you know, one one of them is almost to think lazy. That doesn't mean to be lazy. It means to think lazy. If, because people get caught up in this busy fool thing, you know. If, if, if I'm busy, I must be making money, and if I'm not busy, then it's not good. Well, mm-hmm. actually, you know, I, I, I try and be reasonably busy, but I need to have um, assets to think about things to deal with opportunities sometimes, deal with emergencies. Somebody might want to chat about something, and um, I might just have an idea and start scribbling a piece of paper. If you're sort of one of those people just absolutely hectic from morning till night, you know, it, it might be seen as like, oh, that's cool, he's really busy, this guy's got, you know, I, I could never, people don't do it anymore. But you'll recall, it. So people used to have two or three mobile phones. You cannot speak on two mobile phones at the same time. You can't listen to two phone calls at the same time. So having two or three mobile phones makes absolutely no sense. But it was almost like one of those sort of tick box things people used to do. And um, if you look at my mobile, I barely get any phone calls because unless it's personal, which people don't send to ring me during the day, even my wife, or unless it's an emergency everything else can be dealt with that email mm. and because we don't have any great emergency all oh, people just come in the office doing that. Like some point at the door but the, the, the people you know those people at the lower level they will and i've got friends like this by the way who will just equate running around all day from one thing to the next and nipping to b&q to get someone a piece of paint, and they can go and fix something on something they go god i've been busy today if i'm busy it must be good it's like no actually if you're making money and you're not busy, that's good. That's that's the utopia. You know, to your point of you've got these four or five operations businesses and there's always going to be one that's sort of the crying baby. You've got to go and see to. But if they're making money and you're not that involved, well done. Mm. (laughs) If you've got to be in there all day, you know, pointing and commanding and saying, why have you not done this? Who's not done that? Show me this. Show me that. It's not really a business that it's a person conducting an orchestra and the second they stop, it, it all goes to crap. What you want to do is almost be the theatre owner with the, with the orchestra and the conductors. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a way of looking at it sort of, I suppose it's a philosophical sort of mental approach of how do you build a money making machine? Because that's all a business is. And if it's not a machine, and I don't mean in, in a horrendous like, you know, uh, sense, but I just mean if it's not fluid and operational and standalone, it's not really a business it's just somebody with a group of people around them sort of pointing at things like saying a football team is a business because it's got a captain it, it's not a football team it, it's just somebody shouting at other people to do things a football club is a business
0: yeah I mean the, I, I think the theater and the theater and the orchestra is it's a great analogy um I, I love that I, I think I think from a personal perspective I think one of the challenges I I have is that sitting at a sort of plural level, at high level, um, I feel like I lack a little bit, you know, I I feel like I lack a little bit from a from a personal satisfaction standpoint um, in terms of wanting to be more actively involved on a day to day in an operating business. But that's that that's completely different because that's that's something out of a desire, not out of necessity.
1: You've spotted it, even though you still feel it, at least you've spotted it and you can you can catch yourself before you start causing a nuisance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, no, exactly. Can we can we talk about can we sort of talk about how um, sort of the evolution in, you know, I guess from 2010 up to today and how I guess how LDS has come about? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, the ground rent business and I guess the future of ground rents as well.
1: Yeah. So um, LDS was. I'll skip my investment because we were dealing with developers and lenders all day, and the lenders being development finance lenders for obvious reasons. Um, cliche but you know, I spotted a gap in the market, and it was this patchwork quilt of the various businesses and areas of the market i had been involved in. So what I spotted again, that it was dead obvious, it wasn't any sort of you know McKinsey-style insight. It was the developers could either sell the units off plan to an investment club or a housing association or a high net worth at a big discount and then access finance at reasonable rates so it was sort of low risk but low reward or they could go to the higher end funding double digits and go speculative open market sales and and you know theoretically make more money but potentially go bust so you sort of go high risk high reward low risk low reward and and then this wasn't an overnight it didn't just sort of pop out this idea like a machine but I sort of packed together, I understand finance-ish, I understand insurance-ish, I understand off sales, I understand the investment. And so there's about five or six things, that are pretty unique sort of, you know, code for a business. And I thought, what I'll do is I'll just guarantee to buy the units of Mr. Developer, and it's usually Mr. Developer, so humor me on that one. I'll guarantee to buy the units off Mr. Developer, but I'll let him go and resell them if he wants. And if he can resell them whilst he's building them and he makes more money, then as long as it gives me a share of the upside, fair enough. And it's evolved and evolved and evolved. But that's effectively what LDS does. It, it sits in as a guarantor to buy the units legally. You know, we are contracted legally to buy them. But if the developer can resell them, which they typically do. Great. Because if we have to buy them, then we've got more risk because we've got to put you know a lot of capital out the door. And if we don't have to buy them, whilst we had risk during the process, we've effectively been paid a fee not to buy. Um, Uh, That business is growing very, very, very quickly, and especially in the softening market because it's a sort of counter-cyclical business that when the market's Mm. really, really good, there's still a demand for it. But when the market's down and there is uncertainty, because what does it do, remove uncertainty? There's a demand, and we're getting more and more and more lenders now coming to us. So I wouldn't go as far as to say it's become a condition of development finance, although I would like it to be. Lenders are coming to us and saying, listen, if you underwrite this, or guarantee it, different parts of industries, different terms, we'll participate. Mm. Um, So we do more and more and more and more business. So we just bought our first units, actually, scheme, scheme, uh, 15 units, didn't quite quite go to plan for the chap for lots of different reasons, Um, and we stepped in and bought three million quid of stock. And uh, I'm, I'm perversely, I'm quite pleased at that, not because it, it didn't go to plan for him, but lenders have asked us for the last couple of years, you know, how much stock have you bought? And the answer's always been not. Now, now you can couch that in good underwriting, good developers, good market, and probably a combination of the three. But if your lender, as you well know, you sort of go, mm, right, so you've never really been tested, you're almost like an insurance company that's never paid a claim. Now we've done that, and there's probably some more on the horizon, it's validated the whole thing. You know, The, the lender on that was over the moon because it, it avoided a default, they got their expected return, and they're on to the next loan with the chap or the loan with the next person. Um developer got out alive with his shirt on his back and um, so whilst it's not a absolute positive outcome it, it is good for us to have proved the concept that we will buy them if you cannot sell them
0: and and then how do you how do you finance them when you're having to purchase them I and mean, how are you financing them and, and what's you know what and what's the long-term business model for those units once you've once once you own them like what will you what will you do with them and yeah how do you how do you finance those the purchase of those units
1: the 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 main cash flow in that business is actually the deposits so if if i'm doing a 10 million transaction and we're doing some quite a bit bigger than that but 10 million is easy maths i'm paying a 10 percent deposit so i've got a million quid cash goes out the door there's no return on it at that point in time and the first unit if it sells probably won't sell till month nine let's say and then i get a little bit of the cash back the equivalent deposit, and then I get a little bit of the fee on it. And then until they sell the last unit, hopefully in month 24, I've not got all the cash back. So, so that, that, that's the biggest cash lag in, in terms of having to buy stock. Um, as I said, they, they were about three million market value. We bought those cash and um, the intention was always uh, will be an prop call. We've got the underwriting business that does the guarantees and takes the fees. And if we have to buy any properties, we've got a big property equivalent business with all the infrastructure we'll buy them there. On those properties we've had some sort of specialists involved that we know quite well and they've said yeah, they've just not done a great job of the marketing on these and the presentation and so on and so forth we think you know spend 15 20 grand on the estate tidy it up a bit rebrand it you'll actually even in this market get them out of market value mm. so we'll probably do quite well off that that's that's never been the intention to buy cheap houses and resell them the logic was always If we have to buy units, that's because the developer, who's the the real professional and expert here, can't sell them. And if he can't sell them, how the hell are we going to sell them? And we'll keep them. And and I still stand by that. I think we're going to have these anecdotal maybe examples of where people get a bit of what I call deal fatigue, where they've been on a site for, you know, they might have got planning and other things. So they might have been to a seven to ten year cycle. And the last couple are sticking a bit and the lender wants his money back and they've had cost overruns and, you know the, the local authority want business rates, I've got to you know keep checking the meters every week because of the insurance, and they just ring us and say, right, it won't, it's complete at least in two weeks, and, and we do, and then we come in, you know, fresh, <laughs> a bit more sort of you know, different approach, and we might resell them. Um, there's there's no absolute plan. That's not to say there's not a general plan, but there's no absolute plan because those units, quite fortunately, are probably about 10 miles from the office, so that we, we know the area, we know the site, they're easy to manage and look after. If they were down in Norfolk, where we've got a couple of deals, you know, it's not that easy to manage so far from the office. So we'll probably uh, put those back on the open market at a discount. Yeah. We might lose money on them and, that, and that's the risk we take.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go down a sort of PRS route and, and just sort of hold, you know, rent them the, out.
1: Part of the thinking was, originally, that we'd have this amazing portfolio in due course, because you'd have two units here, three units there, five units there, which from a diversity point is good. You know, having 50 units on one estate isn't ideal because you've basically just got a fancy social housing estate. But, you know, a, a social housing estate is typically better than a council estate and a PRS estate is better than social housing. But you've still got lots of people who live in the properties who don't own them. And psychologically, if you own something, you take better care of it. And that's not to say people don't take care of these things, but you know, you, you're not going to look after a property or a car or anything borrowed as well as you would if it's owned. Yeah. So if, if I own three houses on the estate of thirty, and everybody else owns and looks after them, the people living in those three are much, much, much more likely. It's called social equity, much more likely to look after them. And they're going to be much better tenants. Um, interesting they've got another theory which i think will be proven that the kind of people we end up renting to and the kind of properties we'll own won't really want to rent off us because they won't want to rent off anyone because they're in that transitional phase if they want to buy their own property and what we'll offer to those people we've not involved this yet because we've not had any stock to do with so i didn't want to get too far ahead was you know you're a young professional you come along you're going to rent for a while with your girlfriend wife, partner but you want to buy and and i had this on properties of ours over the years if people ring up and say I'm moving out, I bought a house. And it's okay, where have you bought, Michael? And he said, I bought next door, but one. You <laughs> couldn't bought mine off me. You know? <laughs> it's all right, I, did, I didn't think you'd sell it. Um, so it, it was always that, you, you lose the renter and you get vacant possession, whereas you could have sold the house at market value to the person who lives in there. And we all know that if you get VP of a renter, it needs a lick of paint, it needs this, it needs that. They suddenly get a bit cold and a bit boring because they're empty. So you don't want empty houses, et etc." et cetera. So yeah, the plan would be to allow people who are renting the option to buy them, but other a bit more sophisticated than that, things like good behaviour contracts. If you pay your rent on time, you look after the property, say every year you live there, I'll give you a 1% discount off market value. If you live five years, you get 5% off, which can be, well, it would be definitely tens of thousands of pounds. And so that's, so you, you want to attract the best tenants because that's the easiest sort of life. And we still probably own 40 properties. And if you looked at the rent, as a as a advisor you'd say well yeah these are all a bit under rented and i'd say yeah purposely so you know at least we're in the north so human the numbers but if you take a quid a month and we're getting seven two five i don't want to push you 200 pounds a month because the person seven two five knows they are getting a good deal we know they're a good uh, tenant because they've been in there for six seven eight nine ten years and, and you've got this sort of nice equilibrium of they're getting a bit of a deal we don't have all the crap and admin Know, if you've ever got been involved in rental properties, you'll know how fast you can blow up your margins if you have a bad uh, situation. yeah, you know, it can be years and years and years of the equivalent margin from one house, just if you have a little bit of crap. never mind a lot
0: yeah uh, i mean I, I i have I have owned residential rental, and I've sort of vowed to never have it again because it's and and, and this is in this is in Essex I and mean, not in a you know so different, you know, slightly different market. But you know, every time every time you have to send the, the you know a plumber around to repressurize a boiler, um, you know, well that's fifty quid or that's you know, that's that's X percent of the of the rent. And I remember seeing uh, a flat, yeah, uh, I think it was a flat like somewhere in Cumbria, it was like thirty it was 30 grand. It was rented, rented it. I don't know, 250 quid a month or something like that. You know, not particularly high rent. I was like, no, you just you, you look at it and you go, no, because it's like every time something goes every time something goes wrong in that, in that flat, every time the tenant brings you up, that's that's like a month's rent gone straight so you, away. You bleed, you bleed to death on those. You absolutely bleed to death. I, I have this friend who he, he, he works in Abu Dhabi. He actually works in a big uh, investment company. But he was contemplating the idea of buying a flat in. um He was. He wanted to buy a flat either in Manchester or I don't know somewhere in Yorkshire. You know, it's like somewhere, somewhere. You know, somewhere between Manchester and Yorkshire. He said, "Oh yeah, you know, it's great. It's 115 grand, and you know, it's, it's a really good yield. It's six, seven percent yield." And I just said, "I just said to him, no. I said, do not do it. so you don't have any connection with that area. There's, you, you don't know the location, and." every month you every month you're going to end up getting half of your rent is going to get annihilated it's just forget it you know you're from this if you're going to buy a flat buy a flat in the south an area that you know and that ultimately that if and where the rents are higher and it, if the, you know and if some if there's an issue with the, it with the, with the flat the pr- proportionally that main maintenance or management cost that you're going to incur like you incur every month or every other month is going to, it going to be, fall into, pale into comparison, whereas if you go in the, if you're somewhere in the north, that, you know, that, that is going to, that is going to hurt you badly every time you get a phone call from the property manager,
1: because, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a proximity risk, so early 2000s, mid, early mid 2000s, you used to get calls, people are new, and they say, right, I'm getting involved in the, these properties in Spain, these properties in Brazil, in Bulgaria, uh, you know and they're absolutely amazing deals and blah 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 and i had two answers to that But the one was there's plenty in this country for me thanks very much and the second one was if these guys in brazil or wherever it was have got these amazing deals they'd be selling them to the friends and family and the mates they wouldn't have to get all the way to little me in bolton through you in manchester through someone in london through someone in paris to get rid of them what what it really is if you're going through the levels you know degrees of separation from the yeah. asset to find some numpty, for want of a better word, who go, that looks cheap. It's sort of like your brain goes, hang on, you're probably not in the industry. How many layers does it have to go through to land on his desk? You know, and if he then thinks he's special, you know, that, that's the kind of people they're looking for to go, this guy actually thinks it's a deal. If he goes into his local estate agents when he's back in the UK and whether that's south or north, and he you know kicks the tires a bit and he knows the local area because he's lived there and he's got family there, you know, whilst you may be paying a bit more for it, you've got that familiarity, that proximity. The, the, the second, I mean, even we had this years ago, you know, when you get things a little bit far flung, I had a house in London actually, it just became a little nuisance and I dumped it in the end. And I thought it was too cool old in this house in London, but I just dumped it in the end because every time as you usually something went wrong, I had to get personally involved because nobody had a contact there. So yeah, there, there is that proximity sort of. I
0: don't know what you call it,
1: risk, premium, you name
0: it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we're, we're, fortunately, he, d- he didn't go down that road. So we're, we're, I think he, it, we're all good. And I think now he's uh, uh, I think he's focusing on, on different areas uh, to invest in and, and, and not uh, and certainly not in the real estate space. You're,
1: you're um, what it comes down to. Yeah, you know, what it comes down to I have this conversation probably once a week with someone. Because we all live in houses or flats, but we all live in property. We think we understand it, but you know I can drive a car, but I'm not a Formula One driver or a taxi driver. But property, you just get it with people. You just sort of go, well, you know, what do you just buy it, rent it out, and then you know that's the end of it. It's like, oh, no, no, that's the start line. That's the start line. <laughs> and, and when it, when you have a chat with people, you know people people like you amateurs. Know, people who just do that. I've got a bit of money. I'm going to buy some property. you Say why are you going to buy property? And it's not whilst you won't admit it. The answer is sort of. Well, that's just what you do when you get some money isn't it you're much better this is my stock advice to buy shares in a property company because you could buy them now at 10 to 12 and you change your mind at tea time you can get most of your cash back you might even make a profit if you buy a flat in yorkshire manchester bournemouth today and you want your money back january maybe if you're lucky yeah yeah. <laughs> and, yeah and you've got all the friction costs etc etc cetera, et cetera, you, know, you could so I'm not saying don't buy a property, I'm just saying it's not something you do when you get wealthy. It's investing your money is one thing. Just going that default of oh property because I understand property. Much better buy shares in a property company.
0: Uh, it, not no, man, I'm
1: just saying that liquid shares for your Granger or something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean look, and a lot of these property companies they're discounts to their net asset value. So, you know, the it's better. You just you, you can buy you can you can buy shares in a company for for less money than the actual value, the underlying bricks and mortar that the company owns, which for, yeah, for our got, listeners, you've got a
1: spread of risk, you've got the three, you know, blah 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 blah. You can't mortgage it, but it, you know, it
0: doesn't really matter. Um, well, I mean, it, in in some cases you can. I I think the the only downside with with buying shares in a property company, if you if you're holding them for the long term, is obviously that they, if this is the sort of the, the nerdy bit, is that the 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 value of those shares is more closely correlated with the performance of the stock market than the in a, in a lot of cases than the underlying value of the of, of the properties that they own but you know let, let's be honest property market goes up share uh, stock market seems to go up around the same time just slightly different different paths so um you know it probably over a 20 year cycle it probably washes out one way or the other anyway um but just talking about, uh, and just just talking about uh, management, I suppose one of the attractions of uh, of of ground rents, for example, is that um, you know you, you're ultimately even even if you're responsible for the management and maintenance of the block, you don't ever have to pay for it. Unlike a, a, so uh, theoretically, I mean, I I did yeah. used to believe that until about six or seven years ago,
1: but um, theoretically, yes because the residents are responsible for the service charge. Yeah. But if there is an issue at a building, major issue, and it needs 250 grand to do some emergency works, you know, ASAP, because there's a risk to life or something, we get the checkbook out and, and we, 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 we pay for the works, which is technically a loan, and we don't charge any interest on it even though we can. And then over time, so it depends on the size of the site, really, and then how, how, how big that gravity that check is to that site we'll get the money back. We've got to manage the works and we, and we don't charge it. People will charge for managing we wouldn't charge for managing you've got to oversee people. Um, so there, there is, you know, the insurance portfolio is about five and a half billion pounds. So you can, you can imagine the, the complexity of something like that. It's not just, uh, you know, compare the market, I've got 10 flats, can you insure it for me please? It's very, 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 I suppose, once you understand it like any, like any industry or area, you don't think it is but when i step back from that business sometimes you think this is complex 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 um business and that's just the insurance facet of it collecting the rent is pretty of mechanical you know you send someone a rent demand they pay the rent if they don't pay the rent like vodafone anyone do this debt collection process um we we have you know the H 20 is, don't you
0: yeah of course pretty principle, so, yeah
1: yeah so it, we have effectively the 99-1 principle in, in the management business and i'm not exaggerating it's probably more than this but 99 percent of people take up one percent of the time yeah because they just pay the rents on time and then one percent of people maybe even 0.1 take up the other 99 percent of the time you know you've got some lunatic who's got three rottweilers in a flat and he's playing music all night and everyone in the building is going nuts you've got to act on that but you can't just go around and you know drag them out you can't just there is processes to go through you've got to manage the emotions um the managing agents who we use, we've got a panel of managing agents and thousands and thousands of properties. This you know, they can only do so much before they need judgment calls and, and there's people in the office. But sometimes I've got to be one who says this is what we will have to do on this. And you cannot please all the people all the time. So there are some, again, not to all use the word, but some complex dynamics involved in managing um, buildings. We, we just bought something in London. And the rebuild value of that is 750 something million pounds. So you can imagine how bespoke that building is. There's 48 staff in that. That's twice what we've got in the group. So I've got one building that's got twice as many staff as we've got in the entire business. So they've got concierges who work 24 hours who speak different languages. I mean, we do uh, devolve a lot of that management, but you can imagine the things that bubble up out of these buildings.
0: Wow, it's a, and that's a ground rent purchase, is it? yes yeah is that be like a kind of i mean is that like a dolphin square type uh type building uh it's not it's not
1: i'll tell you where it is um as you go over tower bridge towards city hall yeah there's a block there called one tower bridge Uh, it's it's that sort of big block there um we've got some parking spaces actually in the basement if you're interested
0: (laughs) well listeners if you want a parking space there uh I'm sure Mark will do uh, do you a good deal on them. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they'll be. Uh, well, that, very that's just very an Yeah,
1: and know you get some, some of the smaller sites. And you, If you take we've got probably 26, 28,000 units and most of those have two people living in. So you've got north of 50,000 people. If you take a sample of 50,000 people, you're going to have some people who are serial complainers, people who've got um, you know, mental health issues, emotional issues, people who are just absolute lunatics in some instances. You know, so and and that's what takes the management. You know, so I, I can't speak on specific issues, but we do see. And hour in-house counsel, Gareth, when he first joined us, I said, "All I can tell you is every day is going to be different because you don't know what's going to come into that inbox or through the post." So it is. um and We enjoy it, but it, it's challenging. Um, so collecting the ground is the sort of. the, the the easy end of it, but actually managing, you know, post Grenfell. I mean, we were, we were hot on it before Grenfell, but post Grenfell, building safety act complexities, Michael Gove chucking bombs at the industry all day long, and it's it's there is there is a lot a lot a lot to go out there, uh, which has led to some leaving the market and us maybe buying their assets. So there there is sort of a, a commercial benefit of of sticking with the industry.
0: So I think there's a bit of misunderstanding as to what's what's happening now with ground rents. I mean, so you're clearly still buying them. What can you can you had, has the commercial rationale changed for ground rent uh, investors over so over it's
1: the a last few years? It's a, so for a long, long, long time, you know, from 2011 to maybe 2018, depending where your benchmark 19 maybe, it was a seller's market. So every we wanted to sell. They'd put it out to tender and everybody would be going for them and everyone would be aggressively bidding against each other to the point where, as I said before, we became sellers because it would be lunacy not to, Um, whereas now it's changed quite a lot. You need to be highly specialised now. Before, you could just buy the ground rent, give it someone to manage, give it someone to collect the rent, or you'd have a couple of bookkeeper type people in the office. It's much, much more. I mean, we always knew this, but it's much, much, much more specialised now. We've got asset managers who, who are not just people who just, you know, doing rent with using things, they're, they're very specialised asset managers. So it, yes, it has changed a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, legally, what's changed in the main is ground rent, financial ground rent on new buildings it has been outlawed. Now, that's going to create, I'll say this because this, this will surely come true. If I buy a building at Canary Wharf or the one I just mentioned, I'm buying that because I'm getting paid half a million quid a year, whatever it is. In, in income, so I've got half a million pounds in of income, and I've paid north the ten million pounds for that. I have got a very, very, very strong vested interest in the success of that site alongside the residents who own the unit. So we're very well aligned there because we've both got financial interest. If there is no income on that building and it's you know five six, seven hundred million pounds of building and and it's laden with liabilities, you know you name it, corporate manslaughter, bleach you know, all sorts of different things. Why the hell would I, you or anyone else buy it? And the answer is, well, you wouldn't because it, there's no income. It's just, li- it's just li- liability, liability, liability. So what's starting to happen, and we've not seen the cycle play out yet on this in probably two to three years before we do, is the developers are being stuck with these things at the end of the development because no one's going to buy it off them because there's no income and it's just liabilities. But developers are not asset managers and they're certainly not specialised in it. They can go and give it to a block manager, but then who manages the block manager? Now, we manage block managers in this business, and we manage it very tightly, because if they don't do their job, uh, it creates chaos. So you're gonna end up with this scenario where there's buildings, lots of buildings, and the bigger they are, the more of an issue this will be, where there is nobody professional responsible for it. And that's nothing against the developers, because it's the same as me trying to build a block of flats. It's not that's, what I
0: do. It's not their job.
1: Yeah, but but, but it's their responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> And, and they can't, I mean, some people have said to me, oh, I'll, just, I'll just sign it over to the residents. And it's like, you can't sign it over to Bob at Flat 10. Because if someone falls down the stairs and breaks your neck because the cleaners left up the vacuum out, corporate manslaughter to prison. It's, you've got all the ground not, not the specific grandparents, but the building safety risk. You've got all these things. You know, even just down to gates, not trapping people in them. It's, it's, it's myriads, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. You can't just dump it on. Bob at flat 10 or Joan at flat 12, whatever it is, and then go off into the sunset and say, not my problem, because morally it is. And you can't just give it to a managing agent because how do you know they're doing it properly? So so that is difficult. Now, if you go up the chain there with that, if I was a mortgage lender, I would be taking a very close look at these things and saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. You buy this new flat off, ABC developer, who's going to be responsible for it long term? Because if the building isn't ran, this department clearly, if the building isn't ran properly, the values will plummet to the point these things can become unsaleable and that's our security. And we're giving you 95% LTV, so it only needs a little squeeze on the asset values, and it's underwater. And, and it, it dominoes then. And, and you can even go further around the cycle than that to say if you're funding development and there is no one to take it off at the end, and nobody's going to fund the mortgages. I don't think really they've thought about this yet, by the way, but you know, mortgage lenders looking going, ooh. We need a professional freeholder in this to run it long term, make sure it's insured, make sure it's this, make sure it's that. you can just see, I wouldn't say the whole industry or think system unwinding, but it's it's not a question anybody can answer. It's probably the best way I can put it. If, who's going to be responsible for these buildings? And whoever's responsible for the buildings is effectively going to be correlated to the success of it. And if they're not responsible, then it's not going to be successful. If not, going to be successful. Should we borrow the money to build it? And should we borrow anyone the money to buy them?
0: So there needs to be, essentially, if, if you're not going to reintroduce ground rents on new buildings, they essentially need they need to create some sort of management fee or some sort of incentive or alignment for the owners and managers of those buildings. Otherwise, you, you, you will you so end up on a bit slippery slope. So management agents, the people who
1: sort of run the facilities management for a better description, are incentivized to pay fees. But I'll give you an idea. So post-Granfield, what we saw, not in anything in our portfolio, but on lots and lots of sites, was managing agents realizing they've got ACM on the building, which is the, you know, the bad cladding, and just resign. They just go to Bob the flat tenant and say, Bob, no chance, mate. You know, we cannot be liable for this. We are not having this on our portfolio. So they can be fair-weather friends, let's call them, that when it's easy, they'll manage it. You get this at Lettings as well. You know, you get a bad tenant and people resign. But if you've got a bad building, they'll resign. People won't do that with us because they might be managing two of the buildings for us, and if you get a problem one, and it does happen, we say, "Okay, lads, (laughs) time to double down on this one and sort it out." This is why we pay you. When you get to an individual level, you have no economy of scale and no weight to throw around. So people will—we see it all the time, by the way—they will just resign. And then if it's a resident-run building, the residents will typically fold the limited company. And then when somebody tries to get a mortgage or remortgage or anything. A lawyer looks at it and goes, oh, what, what is this dog's dinner? And we've seen that quite a bit. We've we stepped in on a few buildings recently. And again, you know, somebody's made a mess of something. They folded the resident manco and it falls through to us as professional freeholder. We will deploy a team of people at our expense to go and look after that building. If I'm not there as a professional freeholder because there's no income to me, there isn't anybody to solve that problem. And it becomes an infinite problem then because it goes into a death loop. And and these yes. are things that haven't manifested yet, but it's hard to run any logic with any alternative scenarios, apart from every building runs perfectly in perpetuity and everyone who lives in them behaves themselves perfectly in perpetuity. And the building but, doesn't fall apart or need any repairs.
0: When the legislation was put in place, presumably there were people like yourself from industry who were saying, You haven't thought this through, you haven't thought through the unintended consequences um of this. You know, you have a system that works brilliantly for years and uh, well I said brilliantly but you know it's it's worked perfectly well for years and obviously it's, it's been not a bit, it's, perfect it's, it's, it's not been, perfect
1: the system but it, no, it clearly no. works because th- there is an operational uh, health there I mean people could debate that but, the, the, but when I say health thing, the market is operational you can buy and sell properties quite fluidly such um, so, so the, that... the, the, the leasehold market forget free up for a second leasehold market worked evidently because every day and then we see this at a smaller level people are buying and selling properties you remove you remove effectively the cornerstone professional freeholder and they say it won't manifest for a while this but I, and it's not my problem it's, it's not you know because I'm, I'm not in that part of the industry now
0: yeah well whereas you still you know you still have you're still if if there's an existing ground rent that's that's been put in place you know 10 years ago 20 years ago whatever that remains lawful when you can continue course, to yeah. let, let rent on that
1: and on your point with the government, it was, we spoke to all different people, all different departments. I was in the very first meeting actually in 2016 at the, what was then called M-H, so DCLG um, at Marshall Street in London. And I was the only freeholder there. And there was, you know, the chief executive, the big developers were there. And I just thought, they're gonna realize once they sort of scratch the surface of this, the government, that this is before Granville as well, by the way, they're gonna realize once they scratch the surface of this, that we do a hell of a lot of things that are preventative. And what I realised in due course was because I can't show that these buildings didn't go to ship one of a better description because of all our preventive actions, it's, it's almost like if you said there's no crime, you could actually make an argument that we don't need the police, but you could counter argue that there's no crime because the police doing a good job. But you can argue it both ways. And they took the view, probably because it was more of a vote winner, that, that because the market seems to operate quite well, what's the point of you guys taking money out of the system? And the counter was no, no. <laughs> because we are running these buildings properly, because we've got a vested interest, et cetera, et cetera. If you remove us from it, and not remove us, but you exclude us from it, from where you are accurate, it, you will see it in due course. Because we see every day either things we nip in the bud or things that other people are doing where they've taken control of the management legally under what's called the right to manage, where it just becomes not, not, not in every single instance, some people can run the buildings quite well. in quite a lot of them they take over the management they think it's you know walk in the park and they realize that wow this is not straightforward and they fold the company and it comes back to us and we step back in and that can be as quick as 18 months
0: which Mm.
1: in in the grand scheme of these things is a a fraction of time
0: yeah the right to manage it always i imagine for a lot of tenants, they think, why are we paying all these service charges and management fees? Like, yeah, we could do a better job. And, 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 and without realizing that you, in the case of someone like yourself, where you've got the economies of scale, you've got purchasing power, you know, you've got real muscle that you can deploy to, you know, to get things to get things done at, at good prices. You know you can you, you I mean not that you will squeeze your suppliers but you can squeeze the suppliers to an extent that in a way that the uh, in the way that uh, a manco you know a self-managed rtm manco just can't
1: well they, they won't they don't understand the sophistication either and and that's that's not an absolute criticism but you know unless they're in the industry at a certain level you wouldn't understand it the same as I would understand whatever their age job is so you get things like you know insurance say the insurance costs 10 grand a year They'll, they'll do a right to manage, and they'll come to us, and they'll say, "Ha ha, we've got it for eight grand a year." And you look at the insurance, because we're entitled to see a it copy, because it's still our building, and we're, you know, it's still our asset. then you say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" You know, you've, you, this is a ten million pound building. You've now insured for five million pounds, so it's only insured for half the value. And if you're out of the building for more than twenty-four hours, or a unit, you've got to drain the central heating system. You can't rent the units out. <laughs> All the things that you're doing, you're not allowed to do. And then they go back to the brokers and say, well, we need to be able to rent them out because there's some bike landlords in the building and we don't want to be draining the heating every time we, we, we go on holiday for two weeks and blah, 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 blah. And they will say, oh, bloody hell, twenty-five grand now. So so it's insurance, and I've said this for about 15 years. The biggest thing with insurance, and this is all insurance, including your car, is getting the right cover. The second biggest thing is price. If, if you do it price first, quality of cover second, you may as well throw your money out the window because you just won't be insured
0: yeah i i think i actually saw a, a very interesting uh a very interesting piece on property reporters it's an online uh online publication that i get daily alerts or and like the if you take a selfie of yourself on on holiday and you post it on your social media it can invalidate your insurance
1: i mean this there's, lot. There's, I'm, I'm not saying I agree with it but it's not logic <laughs> you, sort of got, you, you are signaling to the world that you are not in this country yeah. Um, yeah. But, but insurance, there was there was a, a thing that a couple of years ago, I'm sure people Google this, this is genuine. There were some insurance terms that were longer than war and peace, literally not not metaphorically, they were longer than war and peace in terms of pages and number of words. And, and that I've not read that book, it's not on the shelf, but I understand that's about a thousand pages long.
0: Yeah, I have to say whenever I get insurance schedules from my broker, you know, it's like the broker for the various properties that we own that get insured. And I get the policy, and I go, and probably like yourself, you're like, I'm gonna to have to read this, and it's you just go, but if you just end up skimming it, he's going, I'm fucked. <laughs> 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 you do, you never really feel that confident, do you? That you're like, you know, on on the twelfth of, you know, on on the twelfth of, you know, you'll you'll get paid on the twelfth of never, and if you've got to do this and this and this and this, and you just like,
1: oh, it's. it's, it's. Again, because we've got we've got multiple economy scales, we've got an economy of scale with the insurance market, and we can see across the portfolio what the loss ratio is. So even if there's a scenario where it's a little bit gray, whether it's insured or not, usually because somebody in the building's done something, you know, contrary to the policy. We can say, listen, you know, you are expected to lose 20 percent as a loss ratio and our portfolio operates at 10 percent because we're running well. So guys, you're going to have to sort of just take one for the team here and cover it. And they will do. If it was £20 million, we may have a different argument. But at, at Lowell, we had one recently, it was quite a lot of money, where the managing agent, who wasn't under our controls, under the residence control, um, was supposed to clean the storm drains out on this old mill every couple of years, which is just routine maintenance. did not clean them out. There was a storm. The building flooded. Hundreds, hundreds of thousands of pounds. They were not insured. And we had to sort of politely lean on the insurer to get them to deal with it. But if that was a standalone case, they'd have gone, not insured. And then you've got to go to the people in the building and say, right, we've got an 800 grand bill here. You all owe us 10 grand each. And not everyone can pay the 10 grand each. Um, So the work doesn't get done. The building gets down, moldy, uh, dangerous. Everyone gets kicked out of the building and it just goes into into complete decay. And and again, that's just a, a logical progression of things not being dealt with. But because that doesn't happen with us, it's impossible to sort of show all these things that don't happen in the parallel universe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, having uh, ha- on a commercial building, having spent nearly three months trying to satisfy a uh, our insurer about electrical safety certificate, which the the tenant it was tenant's responsibility single left building, and ten tenant uh, tenant didn't uh, tenant had a electrical safety certificate which was basically showed it was failing. Um, it took took forever just to produce that and then then they had to get the work done and then they had to get um, and then they had to get the new fresh certificate and you know we, we you know and constantly we're up against, you know we would be, we'd be given two three four weeks by the insurers the insurers were perfectly reasonable I might add uh to to get these things done you just constantly but you know as as the freeholder you're like listen guys you know we we can't have a situation where if there's a fire the whole you know what, what we left with here, this is not, not...
1: Well, it, it, even up to I if you if got debt on that or not, but even up to your debt. Your debt will say you've got to have this insured, comprehensive. Yeah, be yeah. some really vague term that comprehensively or something, so suddenly you're in breach your own banking terms. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, collecting ground, rent, easy running buildings, not easy. Yeah.
0: Um, as unconscious of time, I'd like we've probably wanted to start to wind things down a bit, but um, what I guess, what are you, what are your biggest. What are the biggest opportunities, but also threats, do you see in the next 18 months?
1: I mean, really, really high level the market. Another grand, forget ground rents, because um, that, that's a super stable business. It's got sort of 50 year fixed debt and things. Um, but the market, so with LBS, the market is softening. Lenders are reducing their terms. Costs are still going up, blah, 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 blah. That creates a lot, a lot, a lot of opportunities for us because there's uncertainty. But because we are effectively taking taking on the uncertainty, if there is more uncertainty than expected, or other thing, or impacts happen, um, you know, we, we, we could become very, very sort of squeezed. Um, we're confident in it, but th- so that there is that sort of really, really sort of exciting sort of window for us. And I say window, I think three to five years of a cycle now of. I don't think I don't think things just tanking in value for three to five years, but things softening and, you know, it's, it's basic economics or well, rates go up, affordability comes down, prices come down, et etc., etc. Et so people are suddenly more uncertain. We solve a lot of that uncertainty. We unlock development. So there's a lot, a lot. I mean, some days we're getting almost hundred million of opportunities in a day, working day. Um, and most of those people, you, again, back to my justification, but you look at it and go, they can't do this without us. And that doesn't mean we have to do it, but it's in our option. And you're looking at you know you're taking on some big liabilities but if it works and we get things right and we don't have to be perfectly accurate it's not that specific it's just broadly right it's a very profitable very valuable business so i don't ever think you really get these unless you're a bit naive these huge opportunities with no downside the, the opportunity usually comes out of the risk and you're almost back to arbitrage if, if the risk is quite high but the, the, the profit is is infinitely higher, then it's a good risk to take. If the risk is low and
0: the profit's even lower, then it's a bad risk to take. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I guess for you, I, the way I see it from your perspective is you've got to f- strike that right balance because if the market, you know, I can see an increasing demand for your product. But if the market goes, the market goes, market forms worse than anyone anticipates, then you may have taken on too much risk when, you know, at a time in the cycle when maybe. You might have wanted to take less on, so I just imagine you're having to just make sure that you're taking the right risks and not opening the floodgates too wide that you end up uh, that you end up pretty, pretty much poorer yeah. poor, so, poor, poor standard deals. Yeah, so we're not being like stupidly selective of
1: you know only doing the, the no-brainers. Um, we're trying to do everything we can, but if we are, i I've I've sort of always held this view actually. It's quite good logic again. If you're a bit uncertain, it's no. Because if your brain's going, mm, not sure, you're either going to spend quite a while talking yourself into it or you're eventually going to come to the same conclusion. It's no. Mm. I don't really I don't really have a little bit of hesitancy because that pause and reflect can be quite useful. But if you're doing this, you know, should and whatever the deal is, should I do it? Ooh, I'm not sure. Should I do it? I'm not sure. You just just tell yourself, no, you know, devolve de- the mental sort of you know, roundabout and then just something else comes up. So so we are, we're always the same investment company. you're sort of going, mm, you want a bit more money, we're not sure, should we pay, it? should we not? It's kind of no, enough. There's always another transaction around the corner. There's always more opportunities. You know, I, I, I can, I won't give you the specifics, but some of the best deals we've ever done are the deals we didn't do because we saw what happened with them. Mm. So there's lots of buildings we looked at over the years that we could have bought, and we just looked and went, that doesn't look like a very good quality building. And they are now some of the you know, horror stories you see around building safety.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Because I guess that that's the big, you know, your, your your upside. You know, you've got I wouldn't call it a limited upside, but I guess when you're managing buildings and you have the risk, you know, you have, you have these risks. You talk about corporate manslaughter, for example. It's quite an asymmetric risk profile. So you, it, it, in theory, it's obviously it's very remote risk. Um, but you know, like you say, if it's a if it's a really poor poor quality building with very obvious issues and you could get unstuck very quickly and find yourself on the wrong end of some lawsuits which obviously you don't want to be uh, uh, facing. Um, just moving on to sort of more personal uh, personal stuff, um, you know what, what positive habits are you engaged in that support your lifestyle and well-being? I mean obviously you know very you've obviously got uh, a lot a lot on your plate and um, we talk about obviously not being a busy fool but you're obviously Will be constantly thinking. Um, what you know? What, what sort of things do you engage in to to help um, help you grow as an individual, but also to uh, mitigate and manage uh, the stresses so, of your life?
1: I, I try and switch my brain off to switch it on, and by that I mean if if you can distract your brain, it opens up your subconscious. So when people talk about having the best ideas in the shower, there's actually a lot of science behind that because you're in the shower going blah 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 blah, and then suddenly you go, I've got it. You know, I've, I've solved. Uh, global warming, because your your subconscious is far more powerful than your conscious. Your conscious actually gets in the way. Um, So I find things like exercising, um, listening to, interesting, listening to audio books, but nothing that's deep. So if you listen to a a bio, if you listen to something like Daniel Kahneman, thinking fast and slow, you'll burn your brain out. Whereas you listen to a bio, it, it sort of puts your brain into like a bit of a state where You're sort of listening to it a bit like when you're driving somewhere and you sort of go, "How do I get hit. and 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 I find that quite useful. Um, And and this, since since I've sort of understood this, we've got a psychologist. I think she told me that there was somebody really, really famous. Um, It might have been Einstein. It was somebody like Einstein, and he used to fall asleep in a chair with a spoon in his hand. And as he fell asleep, and he just nodded into that little state you go into, where it's a bit dreamlike, and the spoon fell out of his hand and hit the floor. When he opened his eyes, he'd have answers to problems because you're going through that. You, before you go into deep sleep, you go into this sort of like, I can't remember the, the sort of psychological or uh, physiological name for it. So I, I quite, quite interesting that it, you're almost trying to switch your brain to, to switch on, even just going for a long walk type of thing. You just end up daydreaming a bit, but not in a daydreaming way where you're supposed to be doing some work and you're staring out the window more in the um so i find that quite useful and 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 you can say that's me selling it to myself and doing exercise and going for a walk and getting some fresh air and relaxing it. but it, it does work that you just have these sort of like i think it's rare that i'd ever be sat in the office and, and suddenly something strikes me oh i need to do this this is a great idea it's more the evolve whilst your sort of brains having a bit of a rest uh what else do i do something i've done twice now since i turned 40 uh, the full body health checks, private medicals. Um, and, and that's lined up a couple of things. And they're just things that you just make you conscious of your mortality and your age. And um, you just naturally you know that that, ma- that's, that marker's a bit high and that one's a bit low. And you can sort of then, you know, scientifically rather than say I'm just going to take every multivitamin and man and, and hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll smooth myself out, you, know, you find out that that's a bit low. And if that gets a bit low, it can affect this and that. And again, not life threatening, but you. Most of these things they're not going to change your quality of life by double-digit percent. They're more small tweaks. If you're clinically obese, I think it's a bit different. But if you're generally healthy and fit, you're looking for slight edge, incremental sort of improvements. So I find that one quite useful. Not drinking probably the biggest one for me.
0: It, it can be stopped, or or you just don't drink much.
1: Um, I, I'm not the kind of person who can have
0: a couple of drinks.
1: Um, so. I've never really drank during the week, um and I've I've cut it out drinking at events. Um so I've not drank in the UK. We were we were away last week and we spent a few drinks, but um I've not drank in the UK for since I went to Wimbledon, which is I don't know, whatever that was early July. Um and, and you find that um just there's just general benefits. I know this is blatantly obvious because effectively alcohol's poison. So if you stop poisoning yourself, <laughs> I went to, I went to the property race day at Ascot actually, again, completely sober. And have you seen the film *Limitless* where he takes his pill and his brain opens up? You know, by the end of the day, I felt like that guy. Not because I'm <laughs> going to be it cleverer, but because everyone's moving in slow motion and they're slowing the words. And you think that's me usually, because that, that, that's uh, most people. So actually, you can gain quite a big advantage, and it's not about gaining advantage, but you can get a, 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 you know uh, life benefits. Let's call it generally speaking of just not doing things like drinking, or staying up till three o'clock in the morning watching TV. Which my wife does that on occasion, trying me mad. I, 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 it's, it's almost do the basics, isn't it? Do the yeah. basics. You don't have to go in the gym 10 times a week. And um, another one, actually, I learned about from one of his books, actually a couple of years ago, was once you get beyond forty. not that you and I are admitting that, but once you get beyond forty, your balance starts to go now, you won't see it, but your balance starts to go. And you probably have personal examples of this. I'm sure most of the listeners will. You know, you hear of people, you know people, you have examples of somebody has a fork as their elderly and they break the leg or the hip and then they go into hospital because that's what happens. And that's the beginning of the end. Yeah. That is the beginning of the end. So they may end up with MRSA or they may end up in a wheelchair and the quality of life is, but actually the start point of that was the, the, the balance, not the strength. You know they, they, are, they are interrelated, but it's balance. Okay. You balance that.
0: That wasn't Peter Atier, wasn't a Peter Atea, exactly, but Exactly, yeah, a longevity. Yeah. Um,
1: and you sort of think it's one of those things where it strikes you, you, think bloody hell, this is a bit obvious all of a sudden. So I'm not saying I, I, I hop around on one leg all day, but rather than going in a gym and, and trying to sort of lift as much as you can or run as far as you can, these these subtle things that people you, you, you people think well, what's the benefit of this? They're the kind of things that could put ten years on your life because you don't have the fall. And, you don't, and if you have the fall or whatever it may be, your quality of life is impacted. You, your life may be ended. So um, that sort of thing. Again, not hours and hours and hours, but even down to stretching. You know, Doing do 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there of stretching, I, I found really, really beneficial because you get used to. It's not like an injury where one day it's there one day it's not. Stiffness sort of creeps up on us all to the point where, you know, one day you want to tie your shoelaces. But it doesn't go, yesterday you couldn't, today you can't, uh, yesterday you can, today you couldn't they really can't it creeps up so it's it's almost that preventative personal maintenance that I think is a big one rather than trying to get a six pack which is probably something I've been trying 10-15 years ago
0: yeah uh, I agree with that I agree with that like the, um, I've, I've really noticed a lot of tightness in my hips uh, lately in the last probably 18 months and um, so it's like trying to reverse some of that and it, it's it's really just a function of just being sat down and then but being sat down a lot and then trying to be very active and, and athletic at, at other times but i agree with you on the single leg work because uh i do a lot of single leg work and that's that, that and one of the benefits of that obviously is helps with helps with balance and and, and proprioception and all that kind of stuff um big fan of peter Attia as it happens um but just you know very briefly um you, you know you've obviously got a great collection of books behind you i I having known you for a long time, I know you're an avid reader um how how many books do you read on average a year i mean i've I've seen to recall it's like one a week or something like that is is it is is it that kind of frequency or
1: it used to be but it's moved away from that and it's not because i've I've actually changed the internally we don't call it reading anymore. we call it knowledge so you know you you Gotta be careful that people don't sort of bastardise this and turn it into looking at Instagram. But if you go on Twitter and you've got your Twitter feed quite well curated, that is absolutely run of knowledge and, and really great wormholes you can go down. So you don't want at the end of the month to go, oh, I've only read one book. I better stop looking at Twitter and start reading books, or I better not listen to podcasts and start reading books. I think it's sort of the wrong metric reading, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to develop knowledge. And knowledge in this day and age comes in all these different sort of shapes and forms. So I would, I would just sort of say consuming knowledge is, is the sort of high level thing, and you know if you are, or if you aren't, you know, you know if you know you're looking at trainers and going, well, you know, I'm learning about trainers. It's like, no, you're not <laughs> looking at trainers. Or looking at, you know, I mean, unless you're really into cooking, if you're looking at restaurants and cooking videos, mean not really knowledge. So, and there's nothing wrong with that because people have different ways to switch off. So, knowledge um, is a better one because. There's lots of things like, um, I have a subscription to get abstract. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they basically condense books. So you wouldn't read a five-page PDF and say, I've read a book, but it would give you knowledge. Mm. And, and, you know, LinkedIn is, is, you know, again, you've got your feed curated. It's full of all sorts of information, but you wouldn't spend two hours on LinkedIn and say, well, that's equivalent to reading a quarter of a book, so I'll put it on my total. So I, I do sort of track how many books I've read, more because I keep a list of what I've read, because sometimes people can recommend them and you forget you've actually read it. Um, yeah. but yeah I, I would I would sort of generalize it more as as knowledge um, than books
0: yeah. yeah i I guess I think that's really nice because what you're saying is it's like it's not it's not it's not about being prescriptive going well I have to read x number of books a, a yeah. week or a year It's actually just saying right we'll just how you know how how much positive informational uh growth oriented content have I consumed and, and that?
1: Yeah, and news, that newsletters, of I, I, I did this recently actually. You know, newsletters you get like the James Clear newsletter, it take about two minutes to read, but there's always something there you go that's one for the day. Um, wow, well, the, the, the newsletters are a big there's they, they, sort of just infinite amounts. Magazines, you know, I, mean, I probably get 10 to 12 magazines a week, depending on what week it is, but you know, if, every week you get Stage Gazette, every week you get Property Week. That's full of information, but you don't go, well, how many books is that equivalent to in a year? Because it doesn't yeah. really matter. It's, it's, a, it's a false metric for how many books have you read. It's more a, a sort of intuitive feeling of am, am I developing something we've introduced, actually, which I'd recommend people to do. Um, is we call it what have, what have we learned, WHWLL, double L, and pretty much everyone at senior level will just email into me at the end of the week or maybe during the week, depending. Just one or two things you've learned and it might be from a podcast, it might be from this, it might be from that, and then we collate them and we send it back out to the group, and then what you what you get over time, I'm doing it for about three months, what you get over time is people saying, uh, this week I did this, this, this and this because I took that thing over there that somebody else had said and that thing over there, and then it evolved into this, and the sort of learning starts, it's not artificial intelligence because it's genuine, but the learning starts to develop new learning, so some of it's insights, some of it's General things. One of the guys recently was uh, trialing not drinking caffeine for something like two hours every morning. You know, because people get up and go and eat coffee and, and it's not a great start. They that, you think that, that's, a, that's a human thing. They're 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 a couple Anchor, of us have that's that. Huberman, yeah. and you sort of think, actually, you know, I, I can see that. And it might be placebo, but placebo still works. So we, we, we are now, we're all building knowledge individually, but you realize that actually if you share it, it magnifies the effect of it. And it does yeah. a number of things. Sharing it magnifies the effect, but actually, Realising you've learned something and then documenting and sharing it. embeds it.
0: Well, I, I think the best for me, the number one way of of learning something is actually trying to teach other people about it. I mean, yeah, I, I, you, I think you understand I, it.
1: You understand it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because, you you, you you know, because unless you want to look like a complete prat. You know, to be able to demonstrate that you you know this uh, a topic, you actually have to understand it. And it there's no better way of learning something than than having to say give a presentation on it on, on topic. Um the final question from me, Mark, uh before before we go. Um you know, cast your mind back I normally say 17, but like cast your mind back to your 16 year old self. What what advice would you have given your 16 year old self? What would you have encouraged a 16 year old self to do differently? Um, and yeah, if you can do that in under uh, under 90 seconds.
1: It's going to sound almost ironic this, because I still suffer from the same issue, but ever since I was probably about nine or ten, I've, I've been quite frustrated. So I remember watching this program on Channel 4, I presume at the time, and there was these guys driving, you know, Ferraris and Monaco or wherever it was. And, and I nearly burst into tears and it really troubled me for like quite a long time so the fact that I can remember it now 30 odd years later because I sort of wanted that. Now, I don't, I'm not interested in Ferraris, et cetera, by the way, but it was more the sort of, you know, I want I to succeed, I want to do this, I want to do that. And even now, you know, I was whinging about something the other day and one of the non-execs said, all these things that you're moaning about, we're in the process of solving. So, so it, it's like, you know, I, I, I'm always trying to sprint before I can walk, Never mind run. And then I get frustrated that things aren't happening quickly enough, even though they're literally in the process of happening as quickly as they possibly can. Um, and I've been like that since I was younger. And as much as I try and manage it and catch myself out and go, no, 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 don't get upset because you're actually, you know, day by day, you're building this wall with the bricks and you're doing things every day and you're progressing. I still get pissed off that things aren't happening as quickly and as quickly and smoothly as I want. And, and it's with me, it's not, I don't have a go at other people about it. I mean, you, you know, so. That that's something. I, I think I, I could be. It could be one of those. Be careful what you wish for. But I think that's something I would like to settle a bit because, irrespective of success, it's just one of those. If you said at sixteen, I'd be where I am now. I go, oh, bloody. Hell, I'll take that. <laughs> no, it's just like no, no, because I know this and I know I can do that and I can know. And and it's just. I think athletes get similar. I'm not comparing the stuff. I think athletes have similar things of. They know what they are capable of and what they can be doing and even if they're the world champion they can still get frustrated with lack of progress because they know that there's always more um, but it, it does sort of go full circle to sort of almost that you know you should recognize your achievements and you should be satisfied and maybe one day I will but I think until then I'll try and use it as a positive and um, so I'm probably not answered it there but that is one thing that I it doesn't take all my life. I do wrestle with it a bit of I suppose you could say it's drive or whatever it is, but I do get perpetually frustrated with oh, you know, we need to we need to do more in LGS, we need to buy more assets, we need to do this, we need to improve the efficiency, we need to we need to we need to we need to we need to. It's like like a sort of raging fire that won't go out.
0: Yeah, well, look, it, it it's part of who you are, it's why you're successful, um, and um, you know, it, I guess is a is that sort of um, never settling for second best, right? That's yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it, not, it's, it's
1: not perfectionism either, because I'm not a perfectionist. I'm, I'm more pragmatic than perfectionist. So it's not perfectionism, which would be frustrating. It's, it's I don't know what it is, but you just um, hopefully you understand what I mean.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's sort of uh, I would I would call it in maybe impatience is, 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 is one, one side to it. Uh, probably is probably a better adjective for it. But um, Mark. It, this has been great uh, how can our listeners uh, and our viewers if you're watching on youtube how can our how, how can our, uh, uh, our our dear friends who, who are watching and listening get hold of you um what's the best uh, way? Le- to
1: linkedin's it? probably my arena um because it's full of commercial people so linkedin um we, we've got a twitter account we don't really use it because I, I use it to browse things but i don't use it to post things facebook i am not on never really have been um, so LinkedIn, or um, well, people can email me directly, but LinkedIn is probably a good way to interact with with me and our and sales, because the group has, the groups got pages there where we communicate some
0: interesting information. I Brilliant. Well, listen, uh, it's been fantastic conversation and uh, although our listeners won't have seen it, we had some technical issues beforehand, uh, Mark was very patient with me on that, so uh, my gratitude to Mark uh, okay. on that front as well. Uh, I guess someone who invests in, uh, in makes investments for 50 years, uh, like a ground rent, uh, maybe has, uh, ha- has, does have occasional patience. I'm, long, I'm long-term
1: patient, actually, you know, yeah. somebody said that to me once you said, yeah, m- macro patient, micro impatient. That's mean forward.
0: That's, that's that's maybe that's a good way to be, right? So, uh, but Mark, listen, thank you very much. Uh, that's that's been great, and uh, we'll hope to have you on again soon. Brilliant,
1: I've enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Speak soon. Bye.
0: A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www.avenmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.